Good morning. Awesome. Hey, that was the first time I have, uh, this is going to be the first time I've played and preached and on the same day in probably like seven years. So yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling spry. I, d- I didn't do it for the applause, but the splattering of applause was appreciated. All right. Um, hey, so my name's Josh. I am the lead pastor of Refuge Community Church. Um, I'll start today with a small saying, a, sm- a saying that you've probably heard before. I know I've heard it before. Uh, and it's the saying, comparison is the thief of joy. Who's heard that before? All the hands go up. Yeah. Yeah, comparison is the thief of joy. And it's a simple idea that comparing ourselves to others, maybe in our jobs, our homes, our, our families, our relationships, uh, our friend groups, you name it, it has the ability to steal joy. Um, not just prevent joy, not just slow joy down. I think this is actually a really powerful, powerful little phrase because what it's saying is that, that it steals joy. In other, way, in other words, it takes joy that would otherwise be there if comparison was not present. That comparison is the thief of joy. Joy would be there if comparison wasn't. And it's a great saying. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this saying. Some of you that have probably been around me and just kind of just hanging around uh, will hear me slip it in every once in a while because I find it to be powerful. I find it to be really impactful. And the thing is, um, if you haven't heard it if, you, if you haven't really absorbed it, I would encourage you to take it to heart. Start saying it to yourself. And you probably really, really should take it to heart because this simple saying is more true than you think it is. In, in 2022, that's just last year, a recent study done by the National Institute of Health, that's a government body. I'm not just quoting something random out there that was like somebody in a basement somewhere was like, look at my findings. But a, but a government body conducted a study uh, and found a direct link between the idea of social comparison, comparing ourselves to other people, and negative experiences in mental health. Specifically, I want to read you their exact quote because it's pretty, it's pretty damning. It's pretty, pretty impactful. The specific quote in the findings, in one of the first paragraphs of the findings, is this, that social comparison orientation, that is comparing oneself for the purpose of evaluation. We evaluate ourselves by comparison, right? Had a significant, direct, negative effect on psychological well-being. Those are three pretty powerful words. It's not like it kind of did. It's not like it had a small, inconsequential, indirect mild impact. It had a significant, direct, negative effect on psychological well-being. And so it makes sense then, God being God, knowing the human heart, right, knowing uh, the propensities of our heart, the tendencies of our heart to gravitate toward comparing ourselves to others when offering us a vision of life in him and what it means to be his people, it makes more sense then why he would give us the commandment, don't covet. Don't covet. Today we're, we're finishing our sermon series going over the 10th commandment, the final commandment. That commandment is do not covet. And here's the thing. If you're anything like me, this one is an ex- it's a doozy. It's like a doozy and a punch in the face. I hope they've all been loving punches in the face. Uh, I hope they've all been impactful and in some ways like convicting and made you think about things differently and made you kind of say, hey, I want to not just look at the idea of the Ten Commandments differently, but I want to look at my life differently and I want to look at God differently. 
But as we arrive at this last one, I got to admit, after all the study that I've done over the past, this is the 10th week, and after all those little moments where we've gone, what does stealing really mean? And what does murder really mean? And all those little cute moments that I have enjoyed and I hope you've enjoyed, this one is the one that probably has the most umph to me. And there's two reasons for it. The first one is because after several commandments about how we treat other people, how we treat other people, in the final commandment, God invites us into a vision where not just our actions toward our neighbors are godly, but our emotions toward our neighbor are godly. To where after all of these commandments saying, hey, treat your neighbor physically, right, tangibly, in a loving way, he arrives at the final commandment to help us see that we're not just meant to treat them well, but we're meant to honestly love them well. Don't covet. Don't, don't desire. Don't long after. This, this incredible invitation at the very end that says, hey, you can do all you want with your physical hands, but I also want to see your heart earnestly love your neighbor. Not just, not just what people can see, but what I can see. But the second is also because the idea of comparing, jealousy, coveting is such a common part of our world. It is so just in your face all the time. It's the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. How many of you have heard that phrase? Like, I'm filled with phrases today. I'm filled with them, right? And, and we, the thing is, we see it at our jobs, of course. Um, we see it among our friends. And the thing is, when we finally get home, after a long day at work, we're often competing with other people. After a long day hanging out with friends, we're hearing how well a lot of them are doing most of the time. Because again, we live in a world where we're judging each other, we're trying to size each other up, and so your friends aren't often coming to you and being like, yeah, man, my life sucks. They're like, hey, my life is going pretty good. Here's the new things. We even ask a really simple question when we see each other after a while. What's new? And it's never, what's new and bad? It's always, what's new going on that you can tell me about that's great? So after a long day hanging out with friends, or maybe even just after watching movies, where I got to say the amount of movies that are set in places like New York, where people walk into $80 million brownstones, like these beautiful houses, and they just walk in, they're just like hanging out, and it's like, that's not normal life. You watch Friends, and they got like an 8,000-square-foot apartment. Like no one lives like that, and yet we absorb this constantly. After a full day of all of that, we finally get home, we settle in, we put the covers on us, we open our phone, and we just start sliding through a social media service that will encourage us more and more to compare ourselves. It's right in front of us all the time. It's so in front of us, and yet God's instruction to us is simple. Don't do that. Don't do that. Right? Don't let your heart be troubled like that. Don't fill your mind uh, with what your life would be like if you had what someone else had. Don't fill your mind with that thought or with the subsequent thoughts that will come from it. Don't do that. Today, I, I, I got to be honest, I am excited to work through this. I'm also a little bit scared. I'm a little bit scared because I'm, it's going to land heavy on me, so I might cry. I encourage you, if you don't have a problem with coveting, you don't have to cry. If you do have a problem with coveting, and we may see that we do, I want to encourage you to really open your heart here. I want to encourage you today to look and think, God, do I love my neighbor, not just shoot to, to treat my neighbor well, but do I honestly love the people around me? Do I honestly care for the people around me? 
when I think about the neighbor that lives next door, when I think about the neighbor that sits next door here, when I think about the neighbor that, that works next door at work, when I think about those around me, because we know that Jesus said anyone can be a neighbor, not just, not just who lives by you, not just who's culturally like you, but anybody, right? And we, we think about even our calls as a church, the mission that we have as a church to serve our community, our neighbors. And we ask not just, God, do I, do I treat people well, but do I love people? And then from there, asking the question, being honest, do I, do I long after what other people have? I just want you to open your heart today, even now, as we begin talking about this, as we, as we move forward. And so, yeah, let's dive in, because I want to explore a little bit more about what, what this coveting actually looks like, what it means, and why it's hurtful. And uh, from there, I want to just give us a bit of a vision of, of why God may look at us and say, hey, don't covet. Don't covet. I think it goes beyond even the scope of our mental health, but I think it goes something much more profound and much, much deeper than that. So let's get started. Uh, and we'll start by simply reading today's text. It's, it's, it's not as easy as some of the other ones. It's more than three words. Uh, but it's Exodus 20, 17. I'd love for us to read it together if you can. And so if you want to read it off of the screen with me, that'd be, that'd be incredible. Uh, but it, it goes like this. I'm going to count to three and then let's do it together. One, two, three. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Amen. I'm going to be old school and be like, this is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks to five of y'all. Okay, so, <laughs> all right, so I, I think it's helpful to start with a question that's pretty simple that we need to square away. What is coveting? What is coveting? In Hebrew, the word coveting uh, has these types of connotations. Again, this isn't English, so we don't have a direct idea, but we have a couple of other words that give us some insight. It's the idea of desiring taking pleasure, darling, which I, I, again, I didn't make these up. I copied these straight from what the resources, the dictionaries were telling me. So I didn't put darling in there, but, but they said darling. Treasure or desiring passionately. This is the idea of coveting in the Bible. Now here's the thing. The root word of this idea, coveting, is, is really the idea of something being pleasing. It's the idea of something being enticing or appealing. It's actually the same root word uh, that we see in Genesis 3, 6, when we have this part right here, uh, when, when the, the serpent is tempting Eve, and, and the scripture is talking about Eve's perception, what she's seeing, uh, the Bible says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. This word was desirable. That's actually the same root word as coveting. Now, she was coveting for sure here, but the same root word is, is the same root word in coveting as it is for was desirable. And so this may lead you to be in a place where you go, okay, so this is just a bad thing, right? This idea of finding something desirable is a bad thing. This idea of coveting something is a bad thing. So I need to just really start cutting this thing off and, and I need to really start checking my heart. I need to go into full like desire Nazi mode of like being like everything that I want, I'm just gonna cut off, right? Like, like well, well, this gets a little trickier. The plot thickens, if you will, in the Bible, because it's also the same root word that's used in something like Genesis 2, 9, when, when God's creating things, and it says, the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. So this isn't bad. This is actually the scripture saying that God made something that was beautiful. God made something that was good, and it was appealing. It was desirable. It was a good thing because God made it. And so right now you may think, okay, so, it's, so is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I'm, I'm really confused. What are you doing here? 
Okay, let's all take a deep breath. This is what I really hope you take from this, that this command is not a command to turn off your feelings. It's not a command to turn off your emotions. It's not a command to not like someone. It's not a command to not admire uh, their job or house or to notice the beauty of a house or even the beauty of a person or a view or or someone's office view, right? It's not saying that you can't have a favorite car uh, or get the feeling of, man, I wish I had that. God doesn't hear those often simple and well-intentioned desires and look at you and go, bad, Josh, bad, Josh. I told you not to covet. And here you are desiring something that's beautiful. That's not what God's responding with because this commandment isn't for you to cut off your feelings. It's not a cut-off commandment. Why? Because God knows what's beautiful. He made it, right? He knows exactly why a house, a person, or something else that's appealing to you, right, is appealing to you. The issue at hand isn't that you want something. The issue at hand isn't that you have a desire for something. The issue at hand is, is, is actually twofold. There, aren't, there is an issue at hand, but it's not that. The issue at hand is, is, is twofold in that one, The issue is when those desires lead you to anything other than love for your neighbor. That's the issue at hand in this commandment. When those desires lead you to anything less, anything other than love for your neighbor, when it leads you to bitterness, when it leads you to being judgmental, when it leads you to anger, when it leads you to gossip, even if it's just the temptation to do those things, even if it's just the feeling or motivation to do that, Right, just the motivation to be angry, jealous, gossip, that there's just a strategic back, like thought in the back of your mind, like, you know, if I just rag this person through the mud in this moment, it might be, even just that motivation, that feeling, when it's present, that's the issue that God's talking about. It's not bad to have these desires, but the moment they lead you to anything less than love, not just in action, but again, like we said in the beginning, in feeling, in emotion, in motivation, Anything less or other than love, that's the first issue. And the second issue is this. When a desire for something God hasn't given you leads to a lack of gratitude for what he has given you. That's the second issue at hand. First issue deals explicitly with the idea of, of how you love someone, whether you're failing to love someone. But the second issue at hand is when a desire for something God hasn't given you leads to a lack of gratitude for what he has given you. When we're so busy looking at what someone else has that we begin to lose gratitude for what he's given us. That's the other thing that's at root here. And this one is actually astonishing, friends. I gotta be honest, this one is astonishing, especially when we read this commandment in light of the story that it's in. Because again, there's not a book of the Bible called the Ten Commandments. There's a book of the Bible where the Ten Commandments are found, and that book is called what? Oh, oh we got some sharp ones. We got, we got some folks using context clues here. All right. Let's do that again. I want to give you all the chance to redeem yourself, okay? I got to be honest with you. I want to give you all the chance to redeem yourself because we've been reading from this one book, one chapter, like nine verses for like about 10 weeks. And I just said, what book of the Bible is it? And there was like a, oh, Exodus. Right? Like, so I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself and I'm going to just run. We're just going to run. Every, okay. So. There is not a book of the Bible called the Ten Commandments, but there is a book in which the Ten Commandments are found, and that book of the Bible is what? Oh, we there now. We there. All right, all right. And if we read and understand this commandment in light of that story, we begin to understand exactly how powerful this second issue is. Because leading up to now, there's been 19 chapters 
that have led up to the moment where God says, here's the way I want my people to live. And they haven't been, there's scarcity, there hasn't been, there's poverty. It's actually been incredible and powerful things. We just look back at the story of Exodus, we see God's incredible provision. That as we enter into the first two chapters of Exodus, we see a people that have gone from safety and security in Egypt to be to being slaves and enslaved and second-class citizens in Egypt. And they're hurting, and, they're, and they're, they're begging and crying out to God. And in Exodus 3, we have an incredible verse. God meets this estranged prince of Egypt, this shepherd, this stuttering shepherd, that's honestly a little bit older than, than the prince of Egypt would have you believe. He's kind of an old-timer, if I'm being honest. And so he probably has ache. If I'm 33 and I got arthritic knees and ankles, I'm sure at like 80 years old, shepherding, Moses probably has some arthritic knees and ankles. And yet he meets Moses there, and God says an incredible, an incredible line in Exodus 3, I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard the cries of my people. And I've come to set them free. I've heard the cries of my people that, that in the midst of all of that tragedy, that story that probably upturned or, or made upside down their entire lives where, where security and safety in Egypt because of Joseph turned into enslavement and bitterness for hundreds of years, God reappears on the scene in Exodus 3 to say, I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard how you're hurting. I've heard how you're sad. I've heard how embittered you are. I've heard the brokenness and I've come to redeem, to save. And so he sends Moses and his brother Aaron to Pharaoh to say, let my people go, right? You've all seen the movie, right? You've all either seen one of the movies. If you're of a certain age, you've seen one. If you're of another age, you've seen another, right? Whether you're a Charlton Heston man or a whoever was in the other one then, uh, you know, no, don't do it, don't do it. I shouldn't have said that because I literally saw 18 different heads be like, who was it? Don't, don't think of it. Let's bring it back this way. Um, he goes and he says, let my people go. Let them go. And Pharaoh, his heart is hardened. He doesn't let them go. And so God brings devastating but powerful plagues and responses on Egypt that display his power, not just as, as an idea, but specifically, if you go and read about it, they display his power in contrast above the powers of Egypt. That while Egypt may have declared that they were powerful to enslave and to hurt and to, and, and to, to demand and to capture, God displays power that directly contradicts every bit of power that Egypt has. And you, 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 if you don't know what that is, just holler at your boy. I'll send you some articles and stuff. You'll be like, this is crazy. So God displays that power, but the, the height of it comes in 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 the 10th plague where, where God gives a lamb, he provides again a, a way of, of, of escaping the anger of these plagues, escaping the powerful wrath of God. And they kill a lamb, they put the blood on the door. I think a lot of you probably know this story. And the response of the Pharaoh's prophet finally like, just go, just go. My firstborn is gone, just go. So they ride out and they think everything is fine until they come to what? The Red Sea, the the stage is set. And now if, if the Red Sea wasn't enough, they look behind and behind them, who do they see? Pharaoh. And in a moment where everything seems lost, why don't y'all tell me what happens next? There's two things. What are the two things that happen? Behind them, what happens? A pillar of freaking fire comes out of the sky and holds up the armies of Pharaoh. 
I barely know what it's like to see a bolt of lightning. And these people had a huge pillar of fire come out of the sky to hold up Pharaoh's army. And what happens in front of them? The whole sea is opened up and they walk through to the other side. That's wild. That's crazy. And yet that's not even where we're at yet. They get to the other side, they're in the desert, and they're hungry. And then what does God provide then? He provides food. In the desert, it says that he provides flakes on the ground that they begin to collect. And in the desert wilderness, the barren desert wilderness, they collect those flakes and make it into bread. And, and all of that is happening. That happens in Exodus 16, so that's already happened. Now we jump just a couple more verses. The thing is, there's going to be a bunch more provision. It, there's going to be a rock that y'all, you'll learn about some other time that's actually Jesus, according to Paul. It's, it's just all kinds of stuff going on. And it's just this incredible provision that happens over and over and over again. This incredible provision that happens over and over and over again. This incredible provision that happens over and over and over again. And they can look back, not just at one moment, but at several moments, not just at one year, but at hundreds of years, and see the redemptive hand of God providing and providing and providing, and yet the human heart still somehow finds a way to go. I wish I had that. I wish I had that guy's wife. I wish I had that girl's husband. I wish I had that person's home. I wish I had that person's status. I wish I had that person's, you insert the thing that tugs at your heart. And the wild, wild truth is that the people we're looking at, the people that are receiving this message are people whose hearts somehow find a way to covet, despite the fact that God has provided so much through the course of the last several weeks. That's just in a few weeks. And yet their heart still finds a way to want something different than that, something more than that, to look and to doubt God, not just what he's, what he's provided, but likewise what he's promised, that he's promised to make a way, that he's promised to open doors, that he's promised to be the way maker that we, we talked about in this song today, that he's promised those things. He, he's provided in ways they could have never imagined, that while they were making bricks and trying to build whatever they could in Egypt under the command, oppressive command, of a bad master, that they would be brought out of slavery by a good master and provided for and cared for and promised that there would be more than in the midst of that, there would still be the aching of the heart that I want something else. There's something else out there for me. That's what coveting does, friend. That's what coveting does. That's what it is. That's why this is so dangerous. Because we become so busy looking over the fence at what others have that we lose the ability to look back at what God has provided and look forward to what God has promised. All because we're so busy looking at the other side of the fence at what someone else has. Forgetting what's been provided and failing to remember what's been promised. So we're stuck. Just in one spot, you're stuck. Paralyzed, like a deer in headlights. But the shining light is the enticing idea that what someone else possibly has is something that you need. All the while, the promises of God are ahead and the provision of God is behind. And if you were to just turn any of those two directions, you would be in engulfed by a beautiful vision of who God is, what he has for your life, and what he desires for you, but instead we're stuck right there, looking at the other side of the fence. What do they have that I could have that would make my life better? That's what coveting does. That's what coveting does, and it's horrible. There's no wonder 
that they would do a study to be like, yo, this has direct negative significant effects on your mental health. Why? Because how, how can it possibly benefit you to look at someone else's yarn and miss the provision and promise of God that actually speaks to the deepest parts of our heart? Friend, this honestly made me think of uh, an individual by the name of Danny Simpson. Some of y'all may have heard this before. This is a pretty obscure story, so I doubt it. Uh, Danny Simpson, all right? He's an individual that hails from Ottawa, Canada. And at 24 years old in the year of our Lord, 1990, good old Danny Simpson decided that he was going to pick up his 45 caliber Colt. And he was going to go to a nearby bank. And what was he going to do? He was going to rob the bank. He had fallen on some hard times. He was pressed for finances. He was in an extreme condition. He legitimately felt like he had no other chances, no other opportunities, no other directions. And so he picked up his family's 45 Colt. He went to the bank. He pulled it out, and he tried to rob the bank. What do you think happened to Danny Simpson? I'm going to ask you all a real quick question so that I could dissuade you if you're in the position. What do you think happens to most people that rob banks? Not a fairly successful endeavor. I'll just say that much. It's not historically has not mean at one point in time, maybe a little, a little, a little successful, like in the 30s before there were cameras. Nowadays, with the digital devices that we have available to us, you try to rob something. These people are evaluating your fingernails. All right. I mean, like, there's very little chance you get away with it. And like most others, Danny Simpson was caught. He was arrested. And in his possession was the money and his family's 45 Colt pistol. But here's the thing. Had Danny slowed down just a little bit, he would have found out that his 45 Colt semi-automatic pistol was made by Ross Rifle Company in Quebec City in 1918. And that Colt pistol at the time of the robbery in 1990 was worth $100,000. And that's what he used to rob the bank. I've worked at a bank. You want $100,000 out of bank, you better call ahead because they don't carry that cash on hand. And that's what he used to rob the bank. Friend, can I say that I don't know if there's a better vision or story of coveting than that, that we would be so incredibly anxious in the midst of the needs that we feel, the longings that we feel, the desires that, again, Force us, not just force us, tempt us, invite us, because we take the action that invite us into something less than love for our neighbor and invite us to, to lose gratitude for what God has given us, all just to get that one thing that we don't even look down and see how beautiful, incredible, and just amazing what we have actually is. Danny Simpson was a fool, but Danny Simpson is all of us. The moment we begin to look to that other side of that fence and lose sight of what God has provided and lose sight of what God has promised, we begin to just look on the other side of the fence, just look at the need, just look at the desires and let them run wild, let them run free. We don't submit them to God. We don't ask God to intervene. We don't come to God. We don't even bring our hearts to God. We just act like God is somewhere out there failing or, or, or just reluctantly or refusing haughtily to, to provide for us. And we just let all those questions about whether he's a good provider, whether he's going to come through, whether he's going to actually fulfill his promises, whether he is who he said he is, whether there's something that could be better out there for me. We let all those desires run wild. We fail to see what he's provided and what he's promised. That's, that's what 
Israelites had a tendency to do. That's what we have a tendency to do. And it's sad. And maybe there's a simple way to say this. Maybe there's a simple application of this sermon. And it's just like, hey, look at God's promises and look at his provision. Right? Don't look across the fence, but look those two directions. And what he's given you, the things he's blessed you with, maybe those things can tie your heart back to him. But let me be very frank with you, friend. If I told you that, I would be in so much air that I would damage your life. Why? Because nothing that God has given you will tie your heart to him. And here's the thing. That wasn't even God's vision in Exodus. What do you mean? Well, maybe something much more profound and much more beautiful is happening in this story. Maybe it's not just about the possessions. Maybe it's not just about what God has given. Maybe it's not just about what God has promised. Maybe it's not just about what God has provided. Maybe it's about something so much more than that. Because maybe the heart of God isn't to point you to what he gives you, but rather who he is. Maybe God wasn't even trying to keep the Israelites' eyes on what he had provided for them in the past or what he promised them in the future. Maybe it was something much, much more beautiful than that. And I think we can find the real purpose in, in Exodus still. Exodus 7.16 says this. This is actually when Moses first goes to talk to Pharaoh. He actually uses a pretty powerful, powerful saying. He says, tell him, that is, tell Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to, let, to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me. And that's a really important phrase in Exodus. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let's read it together. You know, I was, I was like really tempted to not read it together. Bless you. And I just decided at the last minute, no, let's not read it together. But now I definitely wish I had done that. So let's do that. Um, on the count of three, one, two, three. Tell him the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me. I hope that you can just reread so that they may worship me like a million and five times. I mean, if you just looked at it over and over and over again. You see, he wasn't calling them out for food. He wasn't calling them out of Egypt for freedom even. He wasn't calling them out of Egypt for land. Those would be things that would come. But he was calling them out of Egypt, not for any of those things, but he was calling them out of Egypt for himself. That the greatest provisions the Israelites would have was going to be the restoration of their place with God. That was going to be the provision of God. That their greatest provision was going to be reuniting with the only one that could take slaves and make them free. That could open oceans and make them sidewalks. That could take bare rocks and turn them into water. That could take desert sand and make it into flakes of bread. What they needed was never going to be the provisions that God gave but the provider that was God himself, the silos of food, right, wells of water, and everything else that could possibly be promised to them was never going to provide for them the ache of their heart that only God himself was going to be able to meet. And so he drew them out of the city into the desert to himself because only God can provide in a desert better than false providers can provide in the safety of a great city. That's the provider. Who else can say that? Who else can say that? 
Who else can possibly promise to you? What car, what woman, what man, what job, what status could possibly say you can have nothing but me and I will provide everything that you need? More than even false providers can in the safety and security of, the, of those provisions and lies that tell you they can make your life whole. In all the little things that we covet. Who else could possibly fill our hearts with faith and even when our hearts are faithless, somehow still out of mercy, provide better in the midst of our darkest moments than false providers would ever be able to in our best moments? Who else can say that? Who else can give that? Who else can provide that? Who else can promise that? Who else but God? Who else? Who else but him? And friends, the ache of my heart is that I, along with you, because we all do it, that we would look at someone else's house or family or car or spouse or life and fill our hearts with the lie that if we just had that, we'd be okay when God has moved the mountains in your life in order to restore you to himself. He's overcome sin and death to bring you back to him so that you could have the only thing your heart truly needs, him. Him. God. Yahweh. Father. That was the provision of God in this story. That's the provision that God always offers himself, himself. And friend, I, I want to encourage you that that is the provision that stands in front of you today. It stands as an invitation for you as well as it was for them. Why? Not just a, a, an invitation to save you from something, but to save you to something. Man, I love you. I love you. I care about you. But if all your mind is focused on is what you've been saved from, you're probably no better than the Israelites looking over the fence instead of looking at provision and promise. Because all you're looking at is what you came from, never what you're going to. And the thing is, God's invitation for us isn't just, hey, I want to take you from Egypt so that I could give you the things that Egypt said it could give you, but I want to take you from Egypt, from slavery, from darkness, from sin, from bondage, from guilt, from shame, from insecurity, so that I could give you what those things could never give you, me. He, he, he saves us for something. He saves us to something. He saves us to himself. To free us from our sins, yes, and, and from our insecurities and our feelings of insufficiency and, and all that. And he draws us out to, to, to sometimes desert or remote places and displays his provision in ways that we could never have imagined in dark places that seem like only God was the reason we sustained and endured. Because he can be a better provider with just him and in the desert than the false providers could provide. Than the false providers of pride, status, control power, approval, or anything else. Praise God. Praise God. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit. That, that the invitation of provision for you today is not how can I get these material items, but how can I get the thing my, my heart was made for in the God who made me. And friend, today, here's the thing. You have the greatest provision. I have the greatest provision. You have the one uh, that has provided so much and promises to provide even more. 
But more than that, right, you have the one your heart was made for, that your life was made for. Right, today, friend, I, my, my, my desire, my longing is to, is to know that, man, we, we would take the invitation that God has for us. And the thing is, it doesn't look like Egypt, but it does look like the kingdom of sin. Because much like the way God delivered the, the, the Israelites from Egypt, he's likewise delivered us. Because the same way a, a lamb was pro- promised and given and provided to them, the same way a lamb has been promised and provided and forgiven and, 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 pro- and provided and given to us. That, that right now, what you think stops you from being joined to God, the, any, anything that you could possibly imagine that would stop you from being joined to the provider, being joined to the creator, being joined to the God that loves you and sees you and made you, from the God that hears your cries and responds, I've come to respond to them, from the God that sees you in the darkest, that sees you in the tomb and says, rise and get out. The only thing stopping you from that God has been covered by the very lamb that he himself provided. That Jesus himself would take every sin, he would take every failure, he would take every shortcoming, and every obstacle that could possibly be in place. It would be like a retelling of that very story, that there would be anything that desires to engulf you or to ensnare you, there'd be a fire pillar behind you. Anything that stops you or could possibly prevent you from getting to him, he would open up widely, as widely as those seas were open. I promise you, the arms of Jesus were opened even wider. To invite us in no matter the obstacle, no matter the challenge, no matter the fear, no matter the insecurity, no matter the failure, no matter the insufficiency, no matter the blunder, no matter the mistake, you name it. Name it. Name it and I challenge you to put that thing in front of or next to the provider that declares I can do more in the desert by myself than they can in a great city. Name it. Name it. We can't. He has shut the mouth of the accuser. He has given glory to those who were broken. He's restored those that were empty. He's filled those that were empty. You, friend, you, this is your story. I'm not blabbering words about someone that's not you. I'm telling you about you and the God that loves you and the God that provided for you. That is who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the Israelites anymore because the God that stands before us isn't telling us of days gone by like good old days, coveting that which was before. But he stands in front of you today saying the provision that was then is the provision that was now and it's the provision that will always be. And what I've provided will satisfy and what I've promised will overwhelm you. All you got to do is come to me because the provision wasn't what you gave, it's what he gave. I can sit up here and yell the gospel at you all day. I probably actually could do this. I have so much more that I want to just keep, I'm telling you, pray for my kids. But here's the thing. None of that matters unless you hear what I'm saying and you make it about you. None of that matters. I could yell until I'm blue in the face. I could have, yell until I have an active heart attack up here and fall down. Knock on wood. But, but. I could do all that over and over and over again. And until you take the words and ideas, the provision, the story, and it no longer becomes a book in some far out place, but it comes about you and your God seeing you, hearing your cries, providing not just what you think you need, but the one who could do more than what you imagined, providing himself for you and joining yourself back to this God that loves you, learning his heart, 
learning his heart for you, learning his heart for the world around you, learning his heart for your neighbor so that you're not just loving him, but his love for you is empowering you to love you and to love them and to love all of it. And all of a sudden your world becomes redefined by redefined from insufficiency to love and it becomes redefined from insecurity to security and refuge. And it gets redefined not by how you're changing, but by how you're learning the heart of the God who loves you and made you until you begin that work I could yell all day and it will do nothing but praise God the invitation stands that there's not a sea in front of you that cannot be parted by the work of Jesus on the cross so today my invitation to you in covenant is not hey figure out a way to just be grateful for what you have but pick up Adopt, hold dear, a vision of the one who loves you and sees you and made you and knows you. That you would be in love with God today. That you would see the man on the cross, Jesus, in your heart would actually be moved in some way. You don't got to be a crier. I'm the crier. I cry enough for all of us. But you need to be moved in some way by the vision of this God that sees you and loves you and would give everything for you. That's my only desire today as we close up these 10 simple commandments that though we used to treat them like cultural stories, we used to treat them like ways of salvation, my hope is that you can take each one of these and now see them as a vision of the God that loves you, that saved you that redeemed you, and it stands inviting us to more and more. All right, I got two more. I got not two more points. Y'all are like, Dan, is even? No, I got two application points that I just want to offer you. Um, the first one is, is, is the simple idea that we talked about earlier. I think it is important to remember what God has provided and what God has promised. If you take your eyes off of those things, I mean, I, I do understand why it becomes so tempting to look over the fence to what someone else has. And so read the Bible. I, I encourage you to read the Bible. I encourage you to see all that God has done in the Israelites' lives and, 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 you know, all the stories of the Bible, all that stuff. But what I also want you to do and what I also hope you do, and, and also as a, as a side note, the, the promise, no, we'll go back. Uh, the, the, the promises of God can't be found unless we read the Bible. You're not going to derive those on your own. You're going to see them from the scriptures. So the Bible is important. But likewise, for what he's provided, go and make, us, go and make a timeline of your life. I once had this, this exercise in seminary that was so incredibly helpful because they had us do a ranking of one to 10 in two directions vertically. So there was zero was the medium line, 10 up, 10 down. And then we proceeded to put together a timeline of our lives and, and noted the biggest disappointments and heartaches and ranked them from one to 10 and also well, this side, this side for the heartaches. And then the biggest high moments. And we just made a story timeline of our life to just see everything that had happened, I'll tell you, man, some of my biggest heartaches were seen on that page, things that I hadn't thought about in years. And some of the most powerful visions of God's provision came from looking at that same page. So, so figure out your story, right? Don't just read the Bible. The Bible is meant to give you a vision of God, and that God is passionate about you. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So learn your story and, and be reminded of what God has provided and what God has promised and in the scriptures. And this is what I want. This is the last thing. Where am I at on time? Bro, I don't even care. Um, ask God to invade and dwell in every part of your life. Ask God to invade 
honestly, the, what I wrote down in my notes wasn't even dwell. It was invade and occupy. And I felt a little scared when I started putting together the, when I started putting the slide. I was like, that's aggressive language. But you know what? I like it. To invade and occupy. That is the same way comparison is the thief of joy. That comparison, right, steals joy that would otherwise be there without comparison. Likewise, God is going to come in and displace whatever would be there without him. That every idol, every false promise, every longing of the heart that leads us away, invite God to come in and completely overtake that. Invade and occupy your heart in a way that displaces everything that would be there without him. And I'll be honest, this, this was something that I just thought about when it, yesterday. Yesterday, I had a great, great time in prayer. Those of you that know me know my prayer life be struggling. I, me and prayer don't get along. We're not, we're like lamb and tuna fish. That was a big daddy reference for all of you that know about that. But um, it, it, it's not cohesive. I don't oftentimes experience that. And yet yesterday, I got up. First thing I did was go and start praying. And, and I followed like a, uh, some Anglican traditional prayers and liturgical prayers. And I was, I was overwhelmed. I was like, oh, Jesus. I had an incredible time. I connected with him. I had all these like monastic chants in the background. And I was like, I was in it, y'all. I was crying. I was like the whole nine. I got out. I got done. I kept getting ready. And as I got ready, I finally arrived at the, at the sink in order to start brushing my teeth. And it was actually not the moment of prayer that made me think about this point, but it was the moment when I was brushing my teeth. Because other than the, the monastic prayers and the scripture and, and me asking God and talking to him, all I heard was the small hum of an electric toothbrush against my molar. That's what I heard. Nothing else. And in that moment, I, I, I had a simple request to God. God, invade this moment and make it as beautiful as the one where I was hearing the chants and prayers. You invade here. This is yours because I'm yours. So brushing my teeth can be in you and from you and enjoyed through you not just the moment in, in a closet or with the Bible or whatever thing else, invade this space. And I got to tell you, my whole day was absolutely bomb yesterday. I'm not saying it's going to happen every day, but I know that the, the intimacy that I felt inviting God into those little moments connected me with the truth, with a power that I otherwise would not have been connected to. I would have been longing and coveting a moment, a 40-minute prayer time in the morning instead of living life with God next to me in the, in the present. And so ask him to invade and occupy and dwell in every part of your life. Friends, it is like my honest hope that through this sermon and the rest of these sermons that we could develop a beautiful vision of who God is, knowing that this isn't some set of commands that say, hey, do these so you can be saved, but rather the Redeemer has given life to those that were oppressed and hurting. You are mine now because I love you and because I freed you. Here's an invitation into what life in me looks like. What an incredible invitation we have in, in, these, in these Ten Commandments hope that they can shape our hearts and bring life to us uh, as we continue to navigate our day-to-day -day life that, that feels oftentimes so separate from him, but really he's at the center of it. So let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for, thank you, God, I love you. God, I love you, and I pray that we love you. I pray that we love you. I pray that our hearts would be invaded by you, that every single fiber of our being, things that we reserve away from you, things that we fully give to you, Every, every crevice, nook, and cranny of our soul would be invaded by your spirit and that you would quicken us to see the beauty of your love and care and mercy and compassion and kindness all over us, all the time, every second of the day, and that our hearts would be just molded into 
like a ring, into a ring that goes upon your finger in glory, that we would be the glory of your mercy and grace as you, you describe us in your script, in, in your word. Thank you, Father. Help us today. And let us feel that same grace and mercy every time we fail to do that. Every time our heart flutters, every time our heart shakes, every time we're quick to not love neighbor, anytime we're quick to lose gratitude, let us return back to not just what you've provided, but what you've promised, that you'll make a way, that when we're faithless, you remain faithful. Thank you, God. Help us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.